in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org This is Rosie Starr for Radio Catskill. Welcome to Farm and Country, locally produced radio about rural life in the Catskills and the Delaware River Valley. On today's show, Keith Hubbard has a Star Talk report that highlights Jupiter and the Moon. Along the Poets Row, Christine San Jose recites the mindful memories of a grandmother. In her segment, Now You Know, we'll hear about mushrooms. Stephanie Phillips visits Ellenville, New York, to speak with Ted and Ann Hall, who grow mushrooms. All of that coming up on today's Farm and Country, here on Radio Catskill. But first, news headlines from NPR. Live from NPR News, I'm Barbara Klein. The U.S. Embassy in Afghanistan is telling Americans seeking to leave the country not to go to the Kabul airport. It's too dangerous. NPR's Amy Held reports. The U.S. Embassy issued a security alert Saturday citing threats outside the gates of the Kabul airport and advising U.S. citizens to avoid coming unless a U.S. government representative has given explicit instructions to do so. Some 6,000 U.S. troops are on the ground trying to get people to safety. 13,000 have gotten out since the Taliban took over the capital last week, but tens of thousands remain, including Afghans who helped the U.S. over the course of its 20-year war. Razor wire barriers stand between crowds still scrambling to get into the airport as Taliban gunmen patrol the streets. And yet, because of the airport chaos, some seats on outgoing flights are empty. Amy Held, NPR News. Henri is now a Category 1 hurricane. It's moving closer to the northeast coast, threatening storm surge and flooding. More than 4 million people are now under a hurricane warning, posted from New York's Long Island to Rhode Island. And NPR's James Jones reports cities and towns in the storm's path are getting prepared. Forecasters are warning of the potential for significant coastal and urban flooding across the warning area, where Henri is expected to come ashore Sunday. It's been a decade since people on Long Island faced a hurricane warning, and Hempstead, New York Town Supervisor Don Clavin says his town's emergency response team will be ready. We've seen some torrential storms destroy houses, uh, take away electricity for weeks at a time, uh, so why not prepare for the worst and hopefully we'll get the best. New York City is expecting torrential rain and strong winds. For NPR News, I'm James Jones. The Florida Department of Education is giving an ultimatum to the school boards in Alachua County and Broward County. As Malia Leiden of member station WUFT reports, the boards have 48 hours to reverse their mask mandates or the state will start withholding salaries of those who approve them. Both school districts have defied Governor Ron DeSantis's ban on local officials imposing mass mandates. Alachua County School Board Chair Leonetta McNeely says the mandate is needed to protect students and staff as COVID-19 cases surge. We're not backing up. We're moving forward. We know that we're doing the right thing, and I have no problems in them withholding compensation. She also says the Board of County Commissioners will be supporting them if necessary. The school board will reevaluate the mandate in eight weeks. 
The board has yet to officially respond to the Florida Department of Education. For NPR News, I'm Malia Leiden in Gainesville. This is NPR. Support comes from Van Gorder's Furniture, featuring Lodge and Adirondack styles as well as rustic collections, with showrooms at Lake Wall and Poppock, downtown Honesdale, and Milford, PA. Van Gorder's Furniture brings the outdoors inside. VanGorders.com. This is Rosie Starr. Welcome back to Farm and Country. Coming up on today's show, Christine San Jose recites the mindful sentiments of a grandmother along the poet's row. In her segment, Now You Know, Stephanie Phillips speaks with Ted and Ann Hall, who grow mushrooms. But first, we'll hear about Jupiter and the Moon with Keith Hubbard and Star Talk. Thank you for joining us for this week's locally produced Farm and Country. Country. I'm Keith Hubbard, and this is Star Talk. The nearly full moon and Jupiter will be within five degrees of each other tonight. The duo will be in the southeastern sky before midnight and in the southwestern sky after midnight. Jupiter will start the night on the upper left side of the moon. By 1 a.m., Jupiter will be directly above the moon, and Jupiter will end the night on the upper right side of the moon. The full moon will be tomorrow, but the moon will still be 98% illuminated tonight. The moon will look very much full, and it will take a very keen eye to notice that the moon is not full tonight. Due to Jupiter's proximity to the very bright moon, it will not be as bright as it normally would be. The moon's light washes out the sky around the moon, making stars and planets appear dimmer or not even seen at all. Under normal conditions, it is possible to see the four Galilean moons of Jupiter via binoculars. However, the moon will make the sky too bright around Jupiter to see the Galilean moons through binoculars tonight. Jupiter is the third brightest object in the night sky after the moon and Venus. Venus will set around 9.15 p.m. this evening, leaving Jupiter as the brightest planet in the sky for the rest of the evening. The only other planet visible tonight will be Saturn, which will be 17 degrees to the upper right of the moon at nightfall. Let the moon be your guide to Jupiter tonight. If you have any questions, comments, or ideas for future Star Talk segments, my email address is startalk at farmandcountry.org. For Farm and Country and Star Talk, this has been Keith Hubbard reminding you to keep looking up. one poem today, but there's lots and lots packed into it. 
Well, what could you expect? It runs through what's inside the head and the heart of an old grandmother. All those jostling memories. It's by Susan Luxstone Jaffa, who lives over Waymart Way, and she calls her poem Alison's Green. Toward the end, my grandmother embroidered only green. No darks or lights, just one green, stitched in the grey city. I watched, wondering which green had pulled her so. A satin costume, lights of the stage she ran away to. Lush profusion of her mother's garden left behind. A lone china cup from a service for twelve. Cornfields across the country watched from threadbare velvet train seats, green backs to the soprano, but more to the baritone who loved her. A quilt-wrapped baby to nurse, then another. Shoveling snow to the farm mailbox for a card, I am eating mangoes in California, emerald flash in her eyes. Then her shovel jabbed in the snow over and over till she could see grass almost green. Satin hung in the closet, preserved, waiting. She traced circles on ice, counting the years. Bright bow on a pet pig, tangle of strawberries, jars of jam, cooking in the sun, green tomatoes, grass juice dripping from the horse's mouth. Round asturtium leaves covering flowers. A green line painted down Fifth Avenue. New rosary put down with a nod to Scotland. Figure eights drawn at Rockefeller Centre. French. Only French spoke in at table. Her voice never fell away. Music filled her head to silence. Babes and baritones passed before her. Skyscrapers and barns applauded her. She dreamed of embroidery. Needle slipping through linen. I hope you have lots of lovely memories to put down this week. This has been Christine San Jose along the Poets Row for Farm and Country. Stephanie Phillips with Now You Know for Farm and Country. I'm in Ellenville today speaking with Ted Hall and his wife Anne Peru Hall about the philosophy behind their company, Mushrooms NYC. Anne, where are you from and what's your background? Good morning. I'm uh, from Corsica in the south of France, a little island where mushroom foraging is a big deal in the fall and in the spring. It's really a staple part of the diet, along with hunting and fishing and wild harvesting. The traditional diet is very rich in mushrooms, and my dad used to take us up in the mountains in the fall with his huge red 
kind of a sleeping bag size cloth bag that he would fill completely up with mushrooms. And then he was a chef. Then go back to our little homestead restaurant and cook them up and make all these delicacies with them, all sorts of bullets and morels. And I wish I remembered exactly all the mushrooms, but one of the books he had at home that was always laying around was this huge encyclopedia of mushrooms that I love to look through and, and learn about. So that was like back when I was little. And since then, we moved to America, and my mom has been doing traditional cooking. She had a restaurant, natural restaurant, downtown Manhattan. And I just knew I wanted to be in the food industry more for the health reasons. So I started doing caterings and pop-up restaurants and all sorts of fun meals on farms. And when I was pregnant with my second daughter, Alba, who's here on my lap, about three years ago, this opportunity to take over a small mushroom farm that was going to be closing down in the heart of New York City uh, came up. This farm was actually in New York City? Yeah, it was in uh, Brooklyn. This young woman, Regina, had started it. She's a Russian background from Arizona and went into a passion for mycology and mushroom growing and started this farm, and it was just really draining her. She was doing it all on her own, and it was draining her financially. It really needed to grow a lot more to be viable for her. So we thought we'd take it on with a few friends, and it was first meetings where mostly pregnant families <laughs> which was it was like three families that were discussing the idea and everyone was expecting a baby and so we we did it i told you the whole story okay <laughs> <laughs> so just how did you manage to grow mushrooms in new york city they take up some space i would think actually they don't they don't we had the growth space, space was, was the space. size of this room and it could grow to 100 pounds a week wow yeah. What's the size of this room? 15 by, by 7, something like that? And high ceilings and just shelves, shelves, shelves. And uh, it was really contained ventilation. ventilation. So really controlled space. And we were growing mushrooms that got along with each other. So Ted, can you tell me about your background? Let's see. So uh, I grew up in New Mexico where water is scarce through generation down there and came to the Northeast for school and got into environmental policy and went to school in Dutchess County and started doing research at Columbia at the Earth Institute in New York City and a long way from New Mexico yeah definitely my mother's partner he was from Harlem I guess so I had some kind of a connection my grandfather lived in New York City so educationally, did you take botany or did you, how did you learn about this? My background's in behavioral economics, basically. Oh, right. <laughs> yeah. So I'm more into how do we, as people of any culture, relate to our environment and make decisions and think about things like that and to inform policy. And food systems are really at the core and how we relate to food is at the core of how we relate to nature and everything. So starting something viable, I'd say, that's a good alternative to what's been really causing so much harm in our food system. Yeah, my passion was in sustainability, environmental economics, and then really getting into more of the quantitative social sciences. You were at Columbia, did you say? Yes, I was an assistant under David Hardesty 
who's a really wonderful behavioral economist at the Center for Research on Environmental Decisions under Elke Weber. She's the main head of that program. And it's beautiful. It's like all about how basically applying psychology and behavioral finance on like how all of us relate to major decisions that affect the environment. I likened it to the Manhattan Project for Global Warming. It's like how do we really have a, a viable path forward that is not based on theories, but more like our real behavior. How do we actually change the way that we live so that we don't cause so much harm to the world and maybe address these issues? And my grandfather was in the behavioral sciences. He was like a fundamental pioneer of many fields in neurobiology of behavior and anthropology and psychology. And part of me felt that there were some things just missing in academia that I couldn't address in academia and so it got into more activism and helped start Occupy Wall Street and then was working mostly with indigenous people so that I felt like we really had to start to crack the nut of how money is printed, how the economy works and the, the place to do that is in the food system. How do we create a new food system that is harmonious with nature, that is regenerative instead of extractive and somehow within the existing economy yeah we can re-envision how we create a new society around a viable food system instead of a food system that's so brittle and difficult to manage without hurting all life <laughs> somehow all of that doesn't say mushrooms to me yeah. yeah well we were teaching sustainable agriculture I'd been basically studying viable agricultural methods the impetus for that was around sustainability. We were trying to process the waste from this operation that was failing at a community garden we started in Far Rockaway. And mushrooms are the key of topsoil, which is the best path forward for the world in terms of global warming, is to build topsoil. Because it sequesters carbon and makes holds water and makes it easier to grow food and to sustain biodiversity and it's not geoengineering and it's not genetic engineering it's none of these industrial solutions that have massive they're, they're false solutions they're really just larger sections of the economy into their patents or whatever but you can't really patent topsoil you just we can just grow it and we're losing topsoil all over the world because of extraction and mushrooms are the key of topsoil so it made sense to try to help this operation or turn it around and I'd been studying a fair amount and we had a friend who had introduced us to some mushroom growing and I was more familiar with horticultural growing in an educational context so then we, we figured let's let's give this a shot it's, it's such a key to the new food system and it worked so were you married at the time that you got it started with the mushrooms mm -hmm. yeah we had been married for what four years yeah, four and a half. Mm -hmm. And do you still have the facility in New York City that's growing mushrooms? We don't. We had had it for a year, and we had turned it around, but there were unfortunate personality issues with residents and with the landlord who, during the preliminary lockdowns, more or less started becoming abusive of our operation. They were really testing us, kind of provoking and bullying us, even though we were one of the few food producers, even in the whole peninsula. 
We were in Brooklyn, but there was a very early frost, and most of the farms lost all their crops. So we were really needed, and some of this CSAs were looking for anything that was actually grown. So we were dealing with this insane situation with uh, residents coming into our grow space and coughing in it and kind of verbally assaulting our staff because they're coming into the building even though there were segregated entrances. So that was the whole building dedicated to growing mushrooms? There were residents. There was a woodworking shop. And so the, the residents and the woodworker took precedence over us, even though there was a federal and state executive orders saying that farms are not just essential, but critical infrastructure. So hospitals and farms were included as something that nothing whatsoever should ever interrupt their operations. But they didn't really care about the law. They just were mean. <laughs> so we had to demolish the space while moving and meeting a new demand that we were trying to figure out how to manage during the lockdowns. Well, you guys have this wild selection of mushrooms. I see your stand at the farmer's market. Where do they all come from if you're not growing them in New York City anymore? Yeah, we have three grow operations. They're not as efficient as what we had in Brooklyn. It was an optimized infrastructure. So we started a new space during that whole crisis in Long Island with my wife's sister, who has a property out in Mattituck. And her husband. And her husband, Snow and Anthony Holbrook. They're wonderful. They're really, Agat is this incredible, really well-known sculptor all over the world and her husband is uh, also a sculptor and has incredible history with kind of refugee support through his father who is a well-known diplomat so they're these super resilient creative capable people and we're now mushrooms just like us or i guess uh, not saying we're super resilient and stuff but the mushrooms took us over and now <laughs> taking them over their whole places now they're cranking out almost 170 pounds of mushrooms there yeah. a week. And now we have a teeny small system that we set up with our farmhand who kept things running in Brooklyn. Her name's Ray, Ray Wythe, over in Crown Heights. She's growing a small amount, maybe 5% of our produce. And then probably 30% we're growing out here, or 20% we're growing here in Ellenville now. I have to say that I'm sitting now in the hall's kitchen and there are mushrooms everywhere. They're so beautiful. And I'll try to get some pictures up on the WJFF website if you want to see what it looks like to grow mushrooms in your kitchen. Yeah. Yeah, we've been training a few customers to do that. As Since we're organized as a co-op, it's a good way also for people to just have mushrooms regularly in an affordable manner, like just being a part of the productive process, but also as part of a little network of producers that we can source from as members of the co-op. And a lot of our growth is going outside. We would have a lot more in the space that I set up, but there were some ash trees were interrupting me finalizing that. We realized in the spring that there were dead ash that could fall on the steel frame greenhouse that I had built during the late fall. So we'll, most of our production will be outside of here. We do a lot of the early fruiting in here for now. It smells wonderful. It has this kind of an earthy smell to it in the kitchen. So there are no more mushroom growers in the city, I assume. There's Ray, who in Crown Heights, in her bottom floor, she has this sort of like a zip tent grow space. 
So a small amount is in the city. We're trying to figure out a more dedicated space in the city, but I think we need to build outside the city more seriously to support smaller productions like this and more of a network. That's the hope. On your website, you have that you're part of a storehouse co-op. What exactly is that? I guess it's a bit of a new, at least for this region, it's a newer way of organizing between farms. So a co-op being just a profit-sharing entity, a storehouse is actually a Baha'i agricultural network system. It's kind of like a shared safety net between producers, and it has a beautiful history. The Baha'i movement began in the Middle East, in Persia, and then it, this cooperative system of independent businesses, independent producers, as the core of kind of a grassroots economy that started taking root for the first time in Palestine before World War I. And from the son of the founder of the Baha'i Faith, he organized this foreseeing that war was impending. And it was the only source of food that maintained uh, most of that region of like Galilee at that time in 1914 or so. So it fed the whole British army. With mushrooms? It was mostly legumes and grain, I believe. There was a set of mostly protein-rich foods and grain that were stored there. And there was a storehouse system in, in Jordan. And then it's the most advanced implementation of this model is in South America with an organization called Fundayek, which is La Fundación de la Aplicación de las Ciencias. It's a, a rural university that is basically peer-to-peer in distance learning. So there's materials that are developed at the grassroots and that get disseminated and refined by everybody. There's no learned people and ignorant people. It's like kind of a collective uh, materials of, of best practices they get developed over time by everybody. That started in the 70s with six farms and grew to about 150,000 farmers today. So all those farms are the only real example out starting in Colombia and spread seven nations wide of farmers not losing their land to basically global pressures from industry that are like pushing traditional farmers off their land and making monocrops and most farmers can't compete with international prices for staples, but this network actually can outcompete those international markets. So I've been learning that model for a number of years, and I met one of the founders of that network and have been organizing with other farmers around New York City and through our region here to try to set up a northeastern implementation of a storehouse system. So now you know how you can grow mushrooms and help our environment. Our mushroom experts have been Anne Peru-Hall and Ted Hall, whose concern for rational food production led them to found Mushrooms NYC. Please send your suggestions for other topics and experts to Stephanie, S-T-E-P-H-A-N-I-E, at WJFFradio.org. This has been Stephanie Phillips for Farm and Country.
We hope that you enjoyed our show this week with production by volunteers Keith Hubbard, Christine San Jose, and Stephanie Phillips. Special thanks goes to our guests, Ted Hall and Anne Peru Hall, speaking to us on the subject of growing mushrooms. This has been your host, Rosie Starr. Thanks for listening to Farm and Country on Radio Catskill. Support for Farm and Country comes from Damascus Citizens for Sustainability, a community-supported, science-based nonprofit taking legal actions, providing tools for action, and raising awareness of fracking damage since 2008, proactively protecting public health in the Delaware River Basin and beyond. DamascusCitizens.org I'm Mariel Fiori, Managing Editor of La Voz, the award-winning free Spanish language magazine. Join me every week on Radio Catskill Monday nights at 7 for La Voz en Breve. It's an hour of interviews, music, and good vibes from the Latino community in the Mid-Hudson Valley and the Catskills. Spanish language information and entertainment. La Voz en Breve. Mondays at 7 p.m. on Radio Catskill. Support for Radio Catskill comes from Two Queens, offering coffee, tea, and bees. Located in Pete's Plaza, Narrowsburg, New York. TwoQueensCoffee.com